Welcome, my friends, to episode number three of the Crypto Breakdown Podcast. Today, we're talking with John Palmney of ActionableIntelligenceAlert.com. John's a great follow if you are into investing. I will have his website and his Twitter in the description for this podcast. He often talks about hard assets, commodities, uh, gas, natural gas, oil, coal, uranium, all of these things. Today, we're focusing on our discussion on uranium and coal, which are two fascinating investments, in my opinion. The uranium story is where I got my start in investing a couple years back, and uh, I still believe it. It's taken a little bit longer to play out than I had originally thought, but I was also 25 and extremely impatient. I thought things moved quicker than they did. Coal is another interesting one because if you follow the mainstream media, they will tell you coal is dead, it is dirty, and it is... uh, going away and that John will tell us that might not actually be the case and we might be able to make some money in that arena. So I hope you like this discussion about hard assets, commodities, which is uh, something in today's day and age, if all of the printing of money is going to have an inflationary effect, you would expect to see that in the commodities arena as hard assets, you know, things we depend on for our daily life. Those are the things that would go up in price. So this might be something worth looking at right now, and that's what we're talking to John about. I hope you enjoy this podcast, and uh, enjoy your weekend. Hey, John, how you doing? It's been uh, a couple years since we talked. Uh, pretty good. Uh, how about yourself? Doing good. Uh, you know, got a couple kids now, still on the investment thing, uh, having a great time, actually. Crypto's been very well to me, but... Um, you know, when I started, uranium was kind of like my thing, and I, I pivoted away from that. But uh, now, with crypto prices pulling back and all this inflation and COVID and everything having pretty substantial effect on the price of things across the board, I thought maybe it would uh, be a good time to talk uranium with someone who is uh, as knowledgeable as you are. Okay, outstanding. So... I guess the first thing I want to ask is, has the story changed on uranium? When I was in uranium in 2016, 2017, the narrative was that uh, demand isn't going anywhere. It's and If anywhere, it's going up, and the supply is staying steady, if not coming down over time. Is that still the story? Yeah, just to give like the two-minute elevator pitch on this. Um, so nothing's really changed on the dynamics, which is uh, actually, I believe that the fundamentals have gotten better. So let me just quickly go over it. So I was approximately 450 some odd nuclear reactors operating around the world. There's currently in the mid fifties under construction. Those are primarily in emerging and frontier markets, i.e. China, India, Russia. Um, And there are several hundred on the, in the planning and, um, proposed stage uh, that that uh, so on the supply or the demand side you have a um, a slow growth of demand and the thing I'd like to point out is that I think uh, impedes or acts as a um, stumbling block for many people trying to understand this they focus primarily a lot of people have home country bias in the US or in Europe that's not where the action is when it comes to the future of nuclear power it's the emerging markets It's these places that are trying to industrialize or in their S curves of their electricity demand. And um, those are the the aftermentioned countries that I that I have mentioned. So on the demand side, uh, yes, it's uh, pretty good. Um, Supply uh, has gotten better. We've had a couple of mines that have exhausted their reserves. Um, We have had seen situations where we have various uranium explorers or production companies buying spot uranium in the market uh, right now or in the previous year or so and continuing to and then the recent development where sprout asset management basically took over uranium participation corp and um without getting too deep into the weeds here basically has created a called basically a uranium etf if you'd like uh where they will be be in the market purchasing spot uranium. 
Uh, this should be another catalyst to get things going. The problem with the uranium market for a lot of people is, I mean, if you had the kind of cuts to production we've had in uranium in the oil market, for example, say OPEC came out and said they were going to cut production by 10 or 15%, the oil price would probably double within a week. Um, but the uranium industry doesn't trade like that. It's very opaque. The deals are primarily done in long-term contracts, and these are not public knowledge. There's usually non-disclosure agreements um, signed, and it's very hard to get information. So there was a, uh, after the last bull market, there was an overhang of material, depending on how you, who you talk to. Um, you know, we don't know when it's exactly going to be in a situation where the utilities have to come back to the market and start signing longer term contracts. So that's part of the issue is uh, not depending on what analysts you want to listen to or the research you do yourself. But it's a situation where um, you have an increasing demand. You don't have a replacement in a nuclear reactor. The only fuel you can use is uranium and it has a fuel cycle. And so if you have demand increasing and no supply coming on, and in fact, supply being exhausted, you're basically have an industry that's in liquidation. Um, you don't have any more supply. You have increasing reactors. People can forecast the demand. And it's pretty clear that over the next several years and out 10, 15, 20 years, there's going to be a, uh, you know, a mismatch between supply and demand. You can't just snap your fingers and call up India and code up a uranium mine. It takes, you know, a minimum of a decade or so to get that going. So that's a quick kind of synopsis around, uh, I don't think things have changed. I've actually think the fundamentals have got better, but, uh, you know, we still need to see the longer term contract deemed by the utilities to start up to really get the price moving. Yeah, that was, um, I guess a little bit adding a little bit of confusion for me is all these positive developments and the price is still kind of struggling. I know the spot price spot price is still somewhere around $30. I don't know if it's above it or just below it, but you know, in any other market if uh these same things were going on like you said, it clearly would have had positive uh impact by now. Yeah, so the problem is is um well, I mean, recently we've had in the last six months or so, or maybe a little bit longer, we've had a big run up in a lot in the uranium stocks. So let me just preface this whole discussion around the fact that um, there's a difference between investing and speculating, obviously. So there's really, as I've said before in other venues or my own uh, podcasts, there's only one investable uranium company currently, and that's Kaz Adam Prom, which trades in London. Most of the and Cameco is even speculative in my in my book. It's a large Canadian producer, but um, most of these other things are trading sardines. They are speculations on. They have no revenue. They have no sales. That a lot of them will not ever produce any uranium, and so unfortunately, I think what people do is. The prudent conservative thing to do is if you believe that the uranium price is going to go up over time, you should buy the, you know, buy the physical uranium, which is possible to do through the, you know, uranium participation or yellow cake. The uranium participation corp has now been taken over by Sprott Asset Management, but you're buying physical uranium like you would buy a gold or silver ETF. And then if the thing goes to 60 from 30, uh, that's 100% gain. The problem is, is we have a lot of people that have read the, um, stories of the previous bull market in uranium and so they have visions of sugar plums and seeing a stock go up 10 or 20 times but those are spec speculative things now i suspect that will eventually happen once this market gets moving but you can't know the timing of this so what we've seen recently is you know we had this run-up we see this run-up in a lot of the speculative names recently and now we've pulled back significantly 30 40 50 percent in some cases for many of these companies like I said, many of which are just trading sardines uh, and are pure speculations. And that's pretty typical. Um, what I saw, I put up in a uh, recent video that I did where I talked about a company from the previous bull market, which still exists called Forsyth. And it, over the span of three or four years at the last bull market, uh, the stock went from about 25 cents to about $9. But in, in the time frame of those three or four years, that stock pulled had 
for 50% or more pullbacks in its stock price. So this is what you have to expect if you're going to be in these speculative markets. And I think a lot of people get into these things and they think it's a one-way street and it's not. And I think one has to really understand why they're buying these things and if, that they're speculations, that they properly position size and that they're willing to uh, align themselves with people that have done this before. I mean, have found uranium that have legitimate projects and have the prospect of participating when we get in a run. But, you know, when this thing really gets going, which I suspect it will eventually, um, all these things will fly. It's just what's the timing on that. So that's uh, that's really what a big part of the problem is, is that a lot of folks don't have their expectations, I think, set correctly and from a historical point. I mean, what? I mean, a lot of times people will say there's no bull market like a gold bull market, but a uranium bull market's, you know, even it's just so small of a market. And yet it's so important to the energy mix, even in the U.S. and around the world, uh, that when you do have a bull market, I mean, fortunes could be created. And that's what attracts people. But I think people, a lot of novice investors or people that don't realize they're speculating, uh, they get uh, they see a 50 percent drawdown and then immediately they they didn't have any conviction or they didn't really understand what they were, why they were there. And then uh, they, they move on to the next shiny object. I mean, I think we saw something similar in crypto, right? We've had many, I mean, you, you can talk about that, but I mean, it's any market's going to be like that, right? So it's like, okay, why am I in this? Do I understand what the fundamentals are? Do I understand that these are speculative entities and that um, I have to have a plan and that I can't overcommit? I mean, you can't go all in on any of this stuff. It's just too speculative. Uh, Three to five percent position that that goes ten times can be material to your to your portfolio if you get the timing right. And then if you have a fifty percent drawdown, that's not you know going to knock you out of the box. So I was a little bit long winded there, but yeah, that's kind of my view on uranium stocks. Yeah, I uh, <clears throat> I got in too early to be honest. I was in uranium in like twenty sixteen, and I had that gambler's mentality, and I ended up in a whole bunch of stocks that were repeatedly. Uh, raising funds by issuing more stock and then just getting diluted and diluted down. And that's another thing that I think people really need to consider, especially in uh, this arena. You know, these guys are not making money. They are, and they still have overhead. And that doesn't even bring in the cost of actually starting a mine. This is just in the waiting game of getting to the price point where you can justify the mine. So that's why I typically don't, you know, stay away from the smaller side of things now. If I was in the sector, it would just be Cameco. But getting a little bit ahead of myself, I just wanted to put that out there. Is uh, if you are betting on these smaller names, and it doesn't happen for another couple of years, just be prepared to be deluded because that's what happened to me. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. I mean, I think for most people, if they have want to have a position in this, that their best bet is just to buy one of the ETFs like North Shore Uranium or something like that, or the Horizon one in Canada. But that's not going to give you the dopamine release in the you know visions of you know that's what they have. You have a lot of guys that are just like looking at it and say, well, last bull market mega uranium went up ten thousand percent. I need to hit that, and I can you know ten thousand to ten million. You know, I mean, that's the mentality I think sometimes. Yeah, uh, for sure. And I'm in I'm in crypto, so I see a lot of that. Um, a couple of years ago, there was hopes for an American nuclear renaissance, both the plants and also the possibility of mining more uranium. Now that Trump is out and Biden is in, is there still any hope there? Actually, um, we saw some recent closures, but we've also seen some situations like in Illinois where um, there was a desire to close the Byron unit and the Dresden unit, but that may be, uh, they may be saved. So let me just quite, you know, preface this also by saying, you know, nuclear power is actually pretty important to our generation mix here in the U.S. It supplies 20% of electricity to the United States. I don't think people understand that. Um, and with respect to the Biden administration, administration they have been positive mostly because from the towards nuclear from the from the um point of view of climate change and wanting to reduce co2 
I mean, they simply are going to have a hard time meeting these goals that they're putting out if they get into a situation where um, you start closing all these plants. They just don't, um, we're not going to be able to meet our goals with windmills and solar panels if that's what the goals that are being set. So I've seen positive comments. There's legislation floating around about some subsidies to the nuclear industry. Um, some of the state governments are being proactive on this. Do I think that we would get into a situation, I mean, I've been an advocate of this 10 and 10, where we build 10 1,000 megawatt nuclear power plants in the next 10 years, just to get you know our own industry going, because we're getting blown away by the Chinese and Russians on this deal. Um, and we have no domestic, I mean, it's just so, it's just atrophy. There's nothing here anymore. Uh, there's, there's two units under construction, and one in Georgia, or I think, two in Georgia and um, one in South Carolina, but they're, you know, bogged down in the typical, um, they're taking a lot, a lot longer and going to cost more. So I don't know if we'll have a renaissance where we're building plants, but I think there's an effort in certain states um, uh, to preserve those plants and keep them going. We've seen extensions like in Florida and some other places. Now you still have in places like California where they're trying to close, um, I think it's Diablo Canyon. Uh, that, that, that reactor supplies 10% of the electricity for the state of California, and it's base load, CO2 free. So what I would say is, and this is kind of getting off track, is I think that the environmental folks or the people that are climate change um, advocates are a little schizophrenic sometimes. They obviously they want to lower CO2 emissions, but the the technology that's probably the best for doing that, they're opposed to that too. So I think it's gonna be state by state and I'm hopeful that the federal government will continue on to uh, try to preserve this. I think they, they recognize and the administration does that in order to meet their climate goals, they're, they're, they're going to have to, nuclear is gonna to have to be part of the mix. Yeah, I have hopes that uh, America could have this renaissance and start building nuclear power plants and get it done on budget and under time but that just seems uh like it's not gonna happen but you seem to think that the catalyst for increased uranium demand doesn't even really take america into consideration like you i mean maybe that's a little bit overblown but you think the major catalyst is going to be um I don't want to say third world countries, but like these countries that are growing and trying to become industrialized. You think um, if there is an increased uranium demand, that's where it would be coming from? I mean, absolutely. I mean, let's, I mean, it's, you have situations where you probably have like in just in China and India, let's just take them together, a population of close to run three and a half, close to 4 billion people. Um, these countries are, like I said, in their S curves of getting, trying to get to, well, China's more advanced than India, but they're just, you know, these, these political structures, like in China, for example, there's a compact between the people, the CCP and the people, right? That, you know, you'll go along with the, us being in power, but we're going to provide a higher standard of living. And so this is why, you know, right now I just encourage people to go like, you know, um, smog in Beijing and on Google images. I mean, the place is being choked on coal emissions, uh, particulate emissions. So there's a recognition in China that, you know, the demand for electricity is going to grow, you know, you can go into the BP energy review they put out and you can, they forecast, you know, energy demand for different countries. It's not going to happen on solar panels and um, windmills. These aren't even areas in some places like in China, doesn't even really work there. They don't have the same open plains like we do in the Midwest. And so they have no choice. They're building more coal plants. They're ramping up their nuclear plants. I think over the next 20 or 30 years, they're going to build probably a couple hundred plants. And the same things in India. And these places think strategically. They're not wedded to, um, they don't have a four-year and two-year election cycle like we do in the U.S. So if the Chinese Communist Party in their five-year plan says, we're going to build this many reactors, and this is what Nuclear is going to be in the generation mix over the next 20 years. It's going to happen. Um, what are they going to do? They're not going to have every utility and every construction company having their own design. They're going to have a uniform design. All the parts are going to be the same. It's streamlined and it has full support of the uh, entire society, the government, the whole thing. So, um, you know, 
rational, forward-thinking countries that are going to be in leadership positions going forward want a diversified generation mix, not just advocating for one. And so that's where I, that's where I think the growth is going to be. That's what's demonstrable right now if you look at the um, what's going on. And I think that's going to be the um, obviously the catalyst for increased demand over the, over the years. So I think we can agree on that. Like uh, the population across the globe uh, is still rising. Uh, basically, China and India are them two alone represent. I I think it might even be like half the world's population or something, and they're obviously coming uh, industrialized very quickly. So we have an increase in demand, which is one side of the equation. <clears throat> what about the supply side? Is there new mines coming online that uh, can offset this and basically keep the uranium price where it's at and uh, basically uh, make this a bad investment? So just to make a quick distinction, there's plenty of uranium in the ground. The problem is, is that depending on how you want to look at it or what analysts you want to listen to, the break-even price or the, the incentive price, if you will, the price that needs to be maintained for some period of time to incentivize capital to come and develop these resources is somewhere between $50 and $60 a pound. So if we're currently trading in the 30s on spot and probably slightly higher if you want to, you know, in the, I don't, we don't know what the term market is, let's just say the spot market. So no one is going to invest, you know, 10 years of their life and a billion dollars to build a uranium mine on spec, hoping that the price is going to go up. So the situation is we're eating through the investment in capital. That's why I say it's in a it's an industry. It's like a dead carcass by the side of the road that's being fed on, and there's no new cattle being produced here. You know, the, the mines are depleting. There's no investment coming in. And the problem is, is where are you going to build these mines? I mean, um, you look in the West, like in the Athabasca in Canada, they have a history of having very high yields. But I mean, can you build a uranium mine in the United States or Canada? I don't know with the ESG movement. Um, and if you do decide to do it to get through First Nations uh, negotiations, government regulations, I mean, it's 10 years minimum from conceptualizing this thing and then building it and getting it online. And you have to remember is, you know, when you're building these things, you know, I'm in the construction industry. I mean, when you're building and trying to bring a project online, especially something as complex as a uranium mine, like in some places in Canada where you have to freeze, do underground freezing of the, uh, I mean, it's, everything's, everybody's trying to wreck your project, the engineers, the banks, the people at the site, it's just one problem after another. So I, I, I think what's going to happen is that, you know, because of what happened in Fukushima, the price kind of was artificially crashed. I mean, uh, the price was responding to the to supply and demand. And then we had this basically where you just turned off the industry and crashed the price. And so everybody's been living off the previous decades of investment. We're eating through that. And now we're, we've had this huge years that have went by where no one's doing any investing. And at some point that comes to a head. And when I think it comes to a head, I think we're going to see prices go well above um, even the previous highs. I think we're going to have a situation where um, it's musical chairs for the utilities because they've, they've, you know, it's recency bias, right? They've had years and years and years, just like investors of watching these prices at $30 a pound or, or less in some cases and said, well, if we need a couple million pounds, we can pick it up in the spot market. And I think that the music's going to stop one day and uh, you're going to have a situation where you're gonna have prices that are gonna rapidly escalate and at some point, you know, uh, I hate to use these cliches, but they're actually true in these kind of cyclical commodity markets. You know, low prices cure low prices, high prices cure high prices. I think this particular cycle, when it gets going, um, will be longer, will, will go higher and be of longer duration because of so much underinvestment. And when that comes to fruition, I think people are going to be surprised at, at, at what happens in this market. Interesting. My concern um about like the supply side is i never had any idea what china was doing like i know they're building all of these reactors and i have a feeling they're not just building them and saying hey we're going to get the supply later like they got to have some type of plan to get it from somewhere and the whole market is just so opaque it's it's hard to tell what their plans are but i absolutely agree that at this point um 
getting a new mine going in America is, you know, that doesn't seem like it's going to happen. And even Canada, I would, I would hope that they would be more open to it because they've got some of the best grades in the world and it's obviously a great industry for them. But, you know, uh, sometimes the people on the left don't really care uh, about any of that. They just – they focus more on the uh, environmental impact of the mine which I guess sometimes can get overblown, but, you know, they, they do have their points. Um, everyone likes to talk about African uranium companies because, you know, like we talked about, they like uh, to hit that home run, the 100x their money. Personally, I'm not interested in any African miners because um, I think you can get great returns elsewhere, assuming that... Uh, you know, more. I'm more along the lines of just buying Cameco, to be totally honest. And maybe if I want a speculative bet, I would buy Next Gen. Um, what do you think of that? No, I think. Uh, well, first of all, I mean, let's look at these companies. I'm not going to get into the names, but people can research it. You know, you've got your Namibian companies. Namibia is very, you know, pro. Uh, it's pretty squared away. It has good, good, stable government mining laws and stuff like that. But again, the companies that are operating there, most of them are based in Australia and they're doing work there. They're the same thing. I mean, one of them, I mean, I, Deep Yellow was, is run by John Borshoff, who originally ran Paladin during the last run up. And then he was pushed out after the uh, bubble in uranium prices. So he's doing it again. That's a guy, I mean, that's a, that's a jockey, right? It's a jockey bet. He's done it before. His team's done it before. Um, Bannerman has a pretty good, um, CEO Brad Brad Monroe, and but the property is kind of high cost. Then you get up into Northwest Africa and Mali and some of these places, and you have all kinds of Islamic terrorism and revolutions going on. I mean, occasionally in like Niger, I think they have to send in the French Foreign Legion. Occasionally, that's where Riva or whatever it's calling itself now has a lot of their mines, um, like a company like uh, Global Atomic has a, a mine that they're trying to develop there. So, yes, I mean, I, I think, you know, if someone wants to uh, be in uranium, I think Cameco is the 800-pound gorilla, right? Um, they're more set up like a hedge fund now, it seems, if people want to look at it, because if you get a rapid price increase, I think they would have some issues. But I think they're slowly but surely, um, this is working out perfect for them, I think. this Nothing happens for a while in a slow increase. But uh, next gen, I think, is, is something that's going to get acquired. Uh, I, I think it makes perfect sense for Cameco to buy them eventually. But you know, the, what you're, what, what I think is, if you want to, the interesting speculation is, is that you know, the Chinese have basically turned Africa into a colony. And I I would suggest that to your point that you mentioned earlier. That, no, you're right. The Chinese are not building reactors and spending you know a billion and a half or two billion dollars to build a reactor without securing the fuel supply well in advance. So how they're doing that, I don't know. They're not going to go make announcements and tout what they're doing, but you know they have the ability to uh, move in and make deals and uh, even buy things. Even if the even if the cost was eighty dollars a pound, they're more concerned about their energy security and fuel mix. I mean, than they would be about the cost. I think at this point. So um, I think there's a lot of speculation. That's how I look at it. Is that you probably see in, in these. African countries will probably be more pliable, less regulation, easier to do business for a country like uh, China. That uh, well, I don't want to make any judgments on here, but they are who they are. So they, they they're not encumbered with the same morality that we are. It's, let's leave it at that. I think. Yeah, the uh, idea of them just going around and basically colonizing Africa is, you know, that's. That's crazy. It's, it's not something that you really hear about on the news too often. Um, <clears throat> why don't we pivot here to coal? Uh, I know this is, is news to me that people are investing in coal. If you watch CNN or any mainstream media, they'll tell you that coal is dead, it is dirty, and it is not coming back. Uh, why, what would you say to that? I think coal is in the early – I mean – so you're right. So what happened was, you know, we've wrapped up this view that coal is, well, it is, it's dirty, it's polluting, it leaves ash ponds. But, you know, the burning of coal, at least in the United States and in Western Europe, is tightly controlled. 
the emissions are controlled. We've had, we went through all these issues with sulfur dioxide, mercury. I can tell you that I've worked in coal plants and the emissions requirements get tighter and tighter uh, every year. I mean, so that's why a lot of people are abandoning it. You heard of the President Obama when he was in power said he's, they were going to make it so it would not be worthwhile for anybody to ever build another coal plant in the U.S. Again, it's kind of irrelevant what's happening in the U.S. because we're 330 million people and we have these other countries. I mean, there's ncoal.org uh, is an excellent site. I really like it. I mean, they're biased against coal, but they track every coal plant operating, every coal plant, and they'll show you exactly where it's at on the map in these different countries, everyone that's being built currently, everyone that's being planned. And if you go to like China, India, Indonesia, these places, places in Africa, it's lit up like a Christmas tree. Coal keeps the lights on, as they say in West Virginia. It's ubiquitous. It's relatively cheap. You can build a coal plant fairly quickly. They're not hard to operate. And so if you're in a situation where you're trying to move your population from um, poverty or energy uh, poverty into uh, industrialization and urbanization, uh, coal is a very... Uh, is a solution for that problem. So you're seeing the same thing. Coal is not going away. Why coal is so asymmetric, in my opinion, is because tremendous pressure is being put on the industry uh, by not only the government, but the current zeitgeist in the West and uh, NGOs and things like this. So you've seen situations, I'll just give you an example. Um, I mean, who's going to build a new coal mine? Who's going to finance a new coal mine? I mean, so you had a perfect example of what happened. So you had uh, Anglo-American, which is a very large mining conglomerate. Uh, they recently, like two months ago, they had this big ESG thing announcement, and they said, we're going to divest and spin off our South African thermal coal uh, production into a new company. I think it's called, I can't pronounce it, like Thungelia or something like that. It trains in London. So they spin this thing off. So everybody that's a shareholder of the company, that pension funds, um, endowments, BlackRock, all these people, they're not going to hold it. They're going to sell that, that coal company immediately. So the price crashed to like a, um, 110 pence. But this is a profitable coal mine. It exports coal to different places. The cash flows are good, even at the, the prices of coal that before this current run-up. And so um, if you don't have any ethical issue with buying it, the thing's doubled since then. So um, that's just an example. So you're in a situation where coal's not going away. I'm not saying it's going to be a growth industry, but it's not going away. But you have an artificial constriction, if you will, uh, by banks and pension funds and the whole ESG movement to not allow any more coal uh, around, you know, at least in the Western countries, OECD countries. There's this big movement. So who's going to finance it? You're not going to build another coal mine here in the U.S. So you have this supply that's kind of static or maybe slightly growing in the developing countries and it's going to be there for another 20 or 30 years minimum and then you have this constricted supply so that's why you're seeing thermal coal prices take off uh, china there's shortages of coal right now um, the price is making decade highs and you know what you're going to see is based on whatever coal miner you want to look at the remaining coal miners it's just a spreadsheet exercise they make this much cash flow at this price what can they make at this price? I mean, I don't want to give away the store, but um, people I talk to and people that I respect, you take a company like Peabody that was on the verge of being bankrupt, uh, simple BTU, and depending on what you want to make, assumptions you want to make, it's probably around a $10 stock. And I have people that I really respect that are hedge fund guys and guys that have done the analysis think it could be a hundred, over a hundred dollar stock. And let me give you an example. I had a stock in the portfolio that is a copper miner in Chile. It doesn't mine copper, it basically processes tails from Cadelco. It's just a manufacturing process. Before COVID, during COVID, copper prices crashed to $1.40 like last March, the March before this last one, 2020. And their cost of production was like $2.75. So the company issued a going concern. They were, they were, they were, Mining, they were processing this copper for $2.75 and selling it for $1.40. That doesn't work, right? That math doesn't work. You have this reflation thing happen. Copper goes to $4.50. It's at $4.25 now. Now they're making record cash flows. Within a year, the whole thing, the whole dynamic changed. That's what can happen with these kind of companies. So coal, 
uh, is in a situation where you can't even build any more coal mines. Everybody hates coal. The entire zeitgeist is aligned against it. And now you have these, it's not going away anytime soon. Maybe in the West it'll be constricted, but no one's building any more mines. No one's financing mines. And now you have the price at, you know, $130 a, a ton, Newcastle price, whatever it is. And you can start doing these projections on cash flow. It can turn the fortunes of these companies around in, in six to 12 months. And then you have this big asymmetric re-rating. So I think that's what you're starting to see. Because I saw the same thing this morning. CNBC, it was on Twitter. Somebody put the clip on. They were, they're shocked that the coal price is $136. And they can't figure out why it is. Because coal's dirty and everybody hates it. Because, you know, people are first order thinkers for the most part. And they don't look at what's really going on. So... That's another long-winded answer. I'm sorry, but that's that's it. No, I, I appreciate it. It's um, you know, people make fun of the woke culture, and they think it's just kind of harmless young people uh, making a stink about things. But that stuff has real effects, and now you're starting to see, I guess you could kind of call it quote unquote woke culture all the way at the top in these boardrooms with these ESGs, and what it ends up with, like you're saying, is uh real things that real people need like coal and uranium these projects will not get financed because it'll look bad and it'll end up on the news if some bank finances a coal mine so then you know anytime at least from my experience in the past anytime you have some huge intervention you're someone is uh, artificially messing with the invisible hand that guides the markets, it always leads to some type of asymmetrical opportunity. And maybe that's what we're witnessing right now with the coal price going pretty much vertical. I don't know. Maybe when uh, the COVID closures uh, finish up, hopefully soon, maybe that price will come back down. I don't know. Um, but it doesn't sound like you think this trade is over. No, I don't. I mean, another thing you need to look at even here in the U.S., there are generation stations here in the U.S. that can burn. So when you burn coal in a modern power plant or relatively modern, you don't like have chunks of coal that you throw guys shovels in there. So it's pulverized into like a dust. So you can change out the uh, what they call the guns on the burners. So you can fuel switch in a lot of these plants. So when natural gas was so cheap for so long, people that could fuel switch would burn gas. So that got them out of the coal. They weren't burning coal. You know, the whole, people think that they advertise natural gas as being, um, you know, clean and uh, transition fuel to our new renewable, blah, blah, blah. Well, now you have gas pushing up against $4 an MCF. These are, people aren't paying attention to that either. Inventories are way down. So people are switching over to, switching their burners over, if they can, back to coal. And so you're seeing increased demand even here in the U.S. for the remaining plants. So it's fascinating it, you know, to be in these markets, uh, I think you hit the nail on the head. You know, you have to be, and I don't criticize people, but this is what I encourage people to do. You have to be a first, can't be a linear first order thinker. You have to think, okay, what are the repercussions? And you hit the nail on the head. Doug Casey said the same thing. In order to be a successful speculator, that's what you're looking for. You're looking for these assumptions or for government interventions or arbitrary insertions into the market that cause a distortion. And then you have to determine what are the possible consequences? And that sets you up for these kind of asymmetric trades. You hit the nail right on the head with your uh, previous statement. It's interesting. Um, you know, in, in hindsight and with this conversation, it's pretty obvious that coal is not going anywhere. Um, but, it, you know, many people probably think it's, it's already gone. And that doesn't even bring into the uh, equation that, Correct me if I'm wrong, but coal is used in steel and some solar panels production. So, you know, all of these things it, it's are just pointing to uh, it being around a lot longer than the mainstream media would lead you to believe. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that because you're exactly right. I mean, eighty percent of the steel is that's made today is made as a as a you basically have the basic oxygen furnaces with your blast furnace where you. You add pig iron and coke, which is made from metallurgical coal, which is a high quality coal. You basically create coke by burning uh, met coal in an oven with no oxygen to get the impurities off. And then you have this product that you mix in with the iron, limestone, whatever the order calls for. And 80% of your steel comes from that. Without steel, you have no civilization. And so, you know, somebody, some wag got on and made a comment to me, well, in Sweden, they're developing a hydrogen based 
Yeah, but all these things are all lab. I want you to see you scale it up to a plant that can do 5 million tons of steel making it a year doing this, okay? And the problem is, is these things don't scale. I'm, I'm not like this evil industrialist. I wish that all of these technologies work and we get a cleaner world, but I don't, I think people, the problem is, is we have a lot of people that have been mesmerized by technology. They see their phone, they fall in love with a guy, uh, 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 a carnival barker like Elon Musk, and they just think that applies to everything. And uh, well, you know, uh, microchips double in power and go down in cost every year. That's Moore's law. Well, that's not the same with batteries or steel making or cement making or any of these other things. And uh, I, I, I just, it's, it, it does aggravate me because it's like, okay, you want to put up a windmill. Okay, there's 540 cubic yards or 600 cubic yards, depending on how big the windmill is, of concrete in that pedestal with all that rebar. How do you think that's made? It's not just, it doesn't just show up. It's the, the tower is made out of steel. I mean, how does steel made? I, I ask these questions and people just are, you know, it, it, it's, that's what creates the opportunity though. It's easy to sit there and say, um, you can go and, you know, go outside of Wegmans or, you know, Kroger and ask a thousand housewives that come walking out with their little kid, you know, are you for clean energy? And they look down a little shavers and rub his head. Oh yeah, because the future of the children and then you say, well, if, I, if, if that requires us to double or triple your energy costs, uh, the polls have shown people don't want to pay for it. So, um, and we're, you know, it, that's just how it is. And I, don't, I, I think these opportunities are created because, to your point, you, in a two-minute you know, segment on CNN or Fox, you can spin something all the way. But to deep dive these things, the same thing, the situation presents itself in all these things. We're going to have a green revolution. Okay, that's terrific. It basically revolves around copper. And what we've seen over the years is copper grades are going down. There's not going to, to do what they're proposing to do. These are spreadsheet exercises. There's not enough copper production. You have to double and triple copper production. But yet we haven't found any major copper supplies to replace the depleting reserves that we have. That's not to suggest that they're not out there, but a tremendous amount of capital will be required and you can, you know, Goring and Rosenzweig, for example, I, they're very, they put excellent work out. I mean, they're forecasting over the next decade, copper will probably, the incentive price to do all this stuff is maybe 10 or $15 a pound. No one's, that blows up your whole plan right there. So yeah. I would suggest to you that over time, I think reality is going to, you know, re, reality is reality, whether you like it or not. So I, I would suggest that uh, right now that the current zeitgeist is what it is. But in order to do what people want are suggesting they need to do, want to do, means energy, I mean, the IEA is even saying this, energy consumption needs to go down and it doesn't go down. The history is it goes up over time, one or 2% a year. That's just how it is. And now you have billions of people that are entering the middle class. Um, I remember when I was traveling in Mongolia, they uh, met with one of the assistant uh, to the energy minister. This is many years ago. It's a, coal intensive country and they threw a Swedish NGO out of the office right before I talked to the guys. They were like, well, you guys shouldn't be burning coal. You got, they were like, listen, I mean, this is 40 below zero in Ulaanbaatar. If we don't burn coal, everybody will die. Get out of the office. I mean, the energy minister from India said the same thing recently. We have the right to industrialize just like you did. And we're going to do it on the back of fossil fuels. It's just reality. It's, you know, so I think, you're already seeing, and I'm going to be a little long way here, but people are not considering these things. There's already legislation being, being suggested in the U.S. and in Europe to put taxes on products that come from countries that aren't getting with the program uh, with climate change. And that's going to create problems. That's going to turn in, you know, that doesn't make you friends. You see what I'm saying? So I think there's a lot of dynamics involved here that no one's really thought through because... Uh, you know, our society, unfortunately, here runs on buzzwords and bullshit, and uh, there's not a lot of deep thinking happening. I mean, nuclear is the way to go. Why, do, why aren't we building 20 nuclear power plants right now? Think of the STEM jobs. Think of the high-paid construction jobs. You have 300, you'll have 200, 300 trained, highly trained, high-paid guys running that thing for the next 100 years. The, the supply chain that would have to develop in the U.S. that would support that industry, high-paying jobs. Uh, technology jobs. No one's even discussing it. No, we're going to put a solar farm up. All the stuff comes from China. You hire a bunch of uh, 
uh, low-skilled guys for six months to slap the panels on, then four guys wipe the dust off for the next 15 or 20 years. That's not, that's not a really good program in my view, but uh, that's a soapbox. Sorry about that. No, I appreciate it. And um, I, somebody posted a meme the other day, and it said, you know, banning uh, the – like not allowing these countries to industrialize using fossil fuels is like pulling up the ladder after you've used it. And uh, it's going to cause a lot of problems. It's fossil fuels are, you know, cheap. I guess you could say they're cheap to extract and to use. Something like coal, in comparison to building out all of these new technologies that a lot of times don't even work. So, you know, it, it's it's going to cause, uh, I guess, maybe some conflict over the next twenty years or whatever you want to call it. I don't know. Um, I do worry though that, like you said, people. It's, I don't know if it's just me, maybe I'm a little bit pessimistic, but you know, if you ask somebody how you make uh, an I-beam of steel, they have no idea. They do just think these things just show up, like nothing gets taken into consideration. And I think some of that goes all the way into the highest levels of government. Maybe I'm pessimistic, I don't know. So I actually struggled with this for a while. I did a recent interview with an attorney. Um, he lives in New York, so he goes – he has a website called the Manhattan uh, Contrarian. He's uh, Francis Menton's his name. And we talked about this. And I have, he's a very smart guy. And um, we were talking about this. And I was like, I just cannot get my head wrapped around why people, because I brought up like the jaywalking segments that Jay Leno used to do. You go on the street and ask the common man, like, where does bread come from? And, you know, the grocery store, where does electricity come from? They'd answer the plug in the wall. And he said to me, it, it answered the question for me. He said, you know, John, do you speak Russian? And I said, no. He said, why not? And I said, I, I have no reason to learn Russian. So it's the same thing. You know, people are living their lives, doing their thing. They don't understand the, they're not like a geek like me. You know, like I fully understand the ba you know basic oxygen blast furnace steel making process, soup to nuts. I understand how concrete's made, Portland cement's made, what the energy requirements are, you know, how long, how you conceive, build and operate mines because this, this is what I do. I, I'm hot. I'm in it. This is my thing. I'm into that. So you can't expect the average person. That's why I will take any interview and talk about this stuff, because if it just makes it click in a couple people's minds, it's like, you know what? You're right. I mean, we have to even if we want to do this green agenda, if you don't mind this stuff, you, you're not going to be able to do it. And uh, our civilization, I think a lot of people, the comforts we have. I mean, I've traveled extensively and lived in developing countries. I don't like to call them third world countries or developing emerging markets. And it's not fun to be sitting there and have the air conditioner or your power go off for four hours or, or for some unknown time when you're in the middle of doing something. And this is how a lot of people live. And uh, we take this, we take all these comforts and these things, you know, we have this 99.98% reliability when you flip the light switch, it comes on. And when it goes off, you're, you know, cursing the power company, you know, so... I think we take a lot of things for granted, and I think part of it is is like people really don't know because they don't really have a need to know. But I, that's what I try to do is educate people on these things. You really have to think it through because when you go to the ballot box and say, uh, yeah, I want this to happen, and you don't think through how that's going to happen, I think you're going to be disappointed that you're not going to get the result you want. All right. Uh, I don't want to hold you up here too long. Just a couple more questions. Uh, do you think – do you agree with the Fed that inflation is transitory at this stage? So I, I kind of use the analogy here. Short answer is I don't know. You have competing forces. Let's just quickly go over it. On the disinflation, deflationary side, you have an enormous amount of debt that's deflationary uh, that really isn't ever going to be paid back and they're adding to. That's deflationary over time. Uh, you have in, in most of the Western countries, including Japan, old populations. These people consume resources. They don't. I mean, they don't spend money like on houses. They're not in the. They're not in the. The, the expansionary part of their life, if you will. So, and they have you know pension and medical issues. Um, so that's deflationary over time. Um, you have technology, which is a constant deflationary force. Uh, that is a, a true fact. Now, concurrent on the other side of that, you have periods of time where, um, and I think we may be entering one where 
I thought originally we were just in a reflation. It was because of coming out of COVID from such a low base. But what you're starting to see now is anecdotal things. You're seeing, um, I saw an advertiser for Chick-fil-A, $15 an hour, and you have a 401k there in medical benefits. I've seen things like these takeaway dinners that you can get for a family of four at like Kroger. Something used to be 20 bucks. Now they're 25 bucks. Do I think that they'll lower the prices if, if, if commodity prices go down? Probably not. You're seeing people having to raise wages uh, to get people to come in and work um, back to work. Uh, once somebody gets a pay increase, they aren't apt to take a pay decrease. So you have these things that are becoming um, uh, sticky, if you will. And what I would suggest is that some of the things I see, which you don't have time to get into, that are on the geopolitical front, you know, this COVID thing really exposed a lot of the uh, just-in-time uh, supply chains and things like that, which were also deflationary. You know, you weren't holding any inventory. You had sourced in all these low-cost areas like Vietnam, China, and all these places, and you've seen the disruption that's caused. So I think you're, you're kind of in a situation where these transitions, I think, take some time. But I think over time, uh, what I've been telling my subscribers is I think, you know, we're going to have this maybe six months or a year more or eight months of this reflationary off this base effect, reflationary trade. And then I think we're going to get in a situation where I think oil prices are probably going to push the Fed. They're going to continue to go up. Um, and I think prices are going to continue to go up and it's going to push the Fed to get a little scared and, and, and maybe react. And that could cause a, you know, period of, you know, deflationary or big pullback scares everybody. But in the end, all leads, all roads lead to inflation. They, they really have no way out of this um, except for, but the problem is, of course, the timing. You have to trade these things. You could be, make a ton of money on this reflationary situation coming out of this COVID bounce back and then give half of it back during a deflationary year period of, you know, where the Fed's, you know, job boning the market uh, about inflation, and then you know the next crash you have, they have they're, they're going to go back. They only know how to do one thing, right? Print money and and and, and buy MBS and, and Treasury securities. So, you know, it's kind of a long, involved answer, but I think you're going to have this continued little bit of inflation, then maybe a, scare, a deflationary scare caused by you know uh, the Fed having to be forced to pull back, and then when they do. Uh, cause a, a, a break somewhere, they're going to just do what they did again at higher and higher levels. And I think, you know, you just, uh, that's going to be the situation. So I think people have to be prudent is what I'm saying is, you know, take some off the table and just don't assume it's going to be a linear extrapolation from here 10 years. But I think over the next 10 years, yes, the bias is going to be towards uh, inflation. Okay. Uh, one, one final question. You've been following my newsletter for a while and I'm basically all about crypto up until these last couple uh, podcasts. What do you think about Bitcoin? So, well, first of all, I mean, anybody that's listening, I mean, if they're a subscriber, I mean, I subscribed, I think I, when it first came out and I didn't really know that much about crypto. Um, I just didn't invest a lot of time in it. So I would say that your information, I'm not brown nosing you here. I mean, you started out from like dead nuts, like a guy doesn't know anything. I mean, you, how to you know set up a coin base and then MetaMask, all, all these different things. I didn't even know how to do it. And I mean, you were very in depth and I was learning more and more and more. So I have a positive view. I have a, you know, I want to say libertarian bent, but I, anything that undermines the monopoly that these sociopaths at the Fed or these other central banks. So I had a, I had a keen interest in it. The problem I have with this whole thing is, um, it, it, I think the technologies are very interesting for, um, um, you know, basically removing friction from the financial markets, right? So if you tokenize a stock or an asset, I can just do peer to peer. We don't need commissions. We don't need a real estate agent. We don't need stockbrokers. We can do all these. There's all kind. I mean, it's limitless opportunity. The problem is, I think that uh, we go in these waves of speculation. I think that, and it's just like you saw on the internet. I mean. Uh, 2000, 1998, 90, or 98, 2000, um, when the internet blew up, we had a lot of speculation, but longer term, we've seen the kind of benefits and economic benefits and 
technological benefits of came from the internet. So I think, bit, or not necessarily Bitcoin, but crypto technology and all the little branches that come off that uh, are very interesting. And I think that they, we can't even probably conceive right now what the ultimate um, benefits and, and, and the wealth creation that will come from it. The problem is, is man, you really got to be switched on. I mean, it's getting easier and easier. And, and I appreciate the work you do. I've resubscribed. I, I like following it. But we have these waves of speculation, as you know, and I think that really undermines, you know, what I think is a longer term benefit. I mean, we're all here to make money and stuff, but I think what happens is the same thing. It becomes the shiny object. A bunch of people come in that aren't really sophisticated. And then that's usually near a top, a, 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 an intermediate top. You know, the thing I worry about, and I'd be interested in what you have to say about this is this is. In my mind, I'm surprised that the governments have allowed this to go on as long as possible because the control of a nation's money and currency, the ability to issue it, to have a monopoly on it, confers a lot of power. And I see how the crypto technology kind of undermines that. I mean, you could, I mean, just all the things you've heard, like different guys have done, some of the illegal things. We've seen the things where guys have, uh, I mean, I know of a company that I used to work for that they shut down all their, their units and made them, uh, you know, give them a ransom with uh, some type of cryptocurrency and millions of dollars worth. And so I think what's going to happen is these central, eventually these governments, uh, that's what I'm worried about is that at some point, you know, and, and I have these people tell me, well, there's no way that they can outlaw it. Sure they can. I mean, a letter, a, a nasty letter to you, to one person is enough. Throwing somebody in jail for 50 years is another, might motivate another person not to do it. So um you know i i am optimistic longer term i like the technology but i just have this sneaky suspicion that it's going to be very difficult for the people that are in power and the people that control the current monetary system to cede any control or power to you know the average person which i think you know these things empower the average person yeah so first off thank you for the kind words about my newsletter um my stance is that uh i agree there's no way they're just going to give up this power willingly. I think Ethereum, um, I think some aspects of Ethereum are going to go down a very dark road. I think they're going to, um, they're going to enable a lot of surveillance, and uh, I don't know what that's going to look like. I have a feeling that um, the U.S. government, to some degree, I mean, we know they're going to release a central bank digital currency. Are they going to try to make that the main currency? Are they going to ban other stable coins? I really don't know. Um, but I think we all have this ideal uh, fantasy in our head that all the governments just say, hey, we lost. Bitcoin won, so now Bitcoin is the standard. And, uh, you know, you can use Bitcoin freely to do whatever you want. But we know that's not going to happen. Um, maybe down the line, but... Between now and then, I think we'll see uh, a whole lot of surveillance tactics and uh, scary things going on, to be totally honest. We already know that USDC is one of the stablecoins on the Ethereum blockchain, and they have the ability to blacklist any address. So let's say you have $50,000 in USDC, and um, the government accuses you of doing something. They can lock that address, and there's nothing you can ever do to get that out. And uh, I think we're going to see more things of that nature happening. And, uh, you know, that being said, I I still believe in it strongly. I'm, I'm still super bullish long term. I think it's going to, if they do it the right way, it's going to enable a lot of uh, people to finally have access to a financial system. And anytime you're bringing in literally uh, a billion plus people into the financial system, it's going to be a good thing. And uh, just the whole possibility of having an open economy where anyone can start a platform and do all these things. Like you said, I don't know the implications. I don't know if anyone knows the implications, but I have uh, a feeling that it's generally going to be good. So um, with that, you know, we're basically at an hour. So um, one last thing, where can people find you on Twitter and your website if they want to uh, follow you further? Uh, so on Twitter, I'm at John Polamy, and then uh, most of the I've pretty much gravitated to YouTube now. I put out a, a weekly um, video, 
Uh, I also have some podcasts. I'm on Spotify, uh, but you can go to YouTube and all the links are there. Just put my name in there or um, it, it'll, it'll come up, uh, the videos. And then it also has links to my website and all the offerings I have and all the things that I do. All right. Um, I will put all of your information below this podcast, and I'll put it on my Twitter as well. So thanks for coming on here. I thought that was a great conversation, and I know that uh, quite a few people are going to be interested because for whatever reason, uh, the Bitcoin community seems interested in uranium. So I think that they're going to enjoy this conversation. All right. Thanks for having me. Thanks, John.